Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we're devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, May 19th. My name is Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here, and I'm pleased to introduce the first annual Ronald B. Cohen Forum on Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Our speaker will be Eduardo Gonzalez, the president and CEO of Farragon Corporation. Innovation and entrepreneurship are vital parts of any functioning and growing economy or business. And as this is the first Ron Cohen Forum, I want to say just a quick few words about the founder of Cohen & Company. Ron started the firm in 1977. Forty-six years later, they're serving clients around the world, Fortune 1000 companies and privately held small businesses, and a number in between all of whom rely on the firm's partners for sound advice and counsel on how to grow and how to innovate and how to succeed. We're so grateful to be able to recognize Ron Cohen's many contributions to our community with this forum today. Now I want to tell you a little bit about our speaker, Ed Gonzalez of Farragon. He's a prime example of the entrepreneurial spirit in Cleveland and the kind of entrepreneurial spirit we're trying to celebrate with the Ron Cohen Forum. In 1983, Ed bought a failing stealing steel company out of bankruptcy and with five employees gave it new life as Farragon Corporation. Today, Farragon has facilities in Kentucky, Michigan, Mississippi, and Texas, as well as Cleveland, Ohio. Ed came to the United States in the 1960s when his family fled Cuba, pardon me. He went on to study economics at the University of Michigan, and after graduating, he went to work in the steel industry, and then, of course, he started Farragon when he was 28 years old, as all of us do at 28 years old, start <laughs> steel companies. Moderating our conversation today is Ethan Karp. Ethan is president and CEO of Magnet, the Manufacturing Advocacy and Growth Network. And if you have a question for Ed, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club and we'll work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Ed Gonzalez and Ethan Karp. It is fantastic to be with everyone today. Uh, you are in for a real treat. So, so Ed's stories and that bio is just so full of the entrepreneurial spirit that this inaugural forum is about. Uh, you're going to hear it. And, and the best part is it's not, well, for me, I, I love manufacturing. It's our backbone. Is This isn't about you know somebody that went out and started a tech company and made their app. No, this is about the jobs that drive our economy. This is about manufacturing innovation and entrepreneurship. And uh, you know, I asked Ed yesterday about you know, how does he define entrepreneurship? And you're going to see this theme woven throughout. He said, making things better, having an idea of how to make things better, the courage to do it, the know-how to do it, and the persistence to make it happen. And you're going to hear that through and through. 
But we're going to start way back at the beginning. And you told me a story, and, and it's stuck in my head. <laughs> and I just see little six-year-old Ed sitting on the roof of a building. And I'm just I'm going to leave it there. And, and I think you might have been hiding from a family member at that point from uh, who, who might have wanted to do some washing out of your mouth. I mean, this, this, this might have been the, the context. But I'm, I'm going to start there and, and, and tell us about that moment and, and how it leads you into the steel business. What he's trying to get to is, how did I get here? <laughs> how did we get into the United States? Uh, my parents uh, were lawyers in Cuba. We came here December 29, 1960, which for all practical purposes would be January 1st, 61. If any of you know anything about Cuba, Castro took over Cuba January 1st, 59. So this is two years after Castro had taken over. And uh, my parents were under a lot of stress. Uh, the Castro regime was trying to identify where he was, my father, uh, to kill him. So the family had to find places to go. <laughs> uh, my mother took the three, I, I, there were six children, three boys, three girls. My mother took the girls and took off. Never saw my father until December 20, 1960 when I got to the United States. And, and all the boys went to my mother's uh, cousin, who married a naval captain in the US Navy that was stationed in Guantanamo Base. So we got the protection of that. And uh, three months went by, and, and my aunt and I were not seeing things correctly. And I said something she didn't like. She goes, I'm going to wash her mouth out. And I climbed through the trellis up to the roof, and I'm standing there waiting to see if she'd come up. Six years old, and she wouldn't come up. She goes, I'll wait, you down. I'll wait for you here. And as that's happening, I see a car going up the driveway in the military base, and out pops my mother uh, with, her, with my three sisters. We all got in the car, took off to Havana. This is Santiago, so Havana's at the other end of the island. Uh, three days later, we're on a Pan-American flight, and we're her headed here, and the whole time you're asking, where's your dad, where's your dad? He goes, shh, quiet. You don't know who's listening on this plane. And when we got here, my dad was in Miami waiting for us. And from there, we stayed till um, September. Uh, actually, it was August, August of um, 61. Now, you got to think, 61, the Bay of Pigs was in, in March, and uh, the missiles of October, and the next in October, right? So I mean, this is a stressful period of time. Uh, we moved to Cincinnati because my father got a job uh, teaching at an all-girls uh, Catholic university there, and uh, we stayed there till uh, uh, I got in the car to go to the University of Michigan. That day I got in the car to go to Michigan. My parents were in the car, headed to California, and I never lived home again. I, as an 18-year-old, went there, graduated from Michigan, then basically started my journey to. I married my high school sweetheart. Uh, Jenna, <laughs> she was in, she was one year behind me. She was at the University of Cincinnati, so I promised her after I graduated a year earlier than her. I promised her that I would move to Cincinnati and be with her. We got married right at. She graduated in June of '77. We were married in July, uh, and, and now we have four kids and uh, t eleven grandkids. But um, I, I promised her I would go to Cincinnati for a year, let her get acclimated, because nobody in her family had ever moved out of Cincinnati. Nobody. And I was going to take her to Cleveland. The reason I went to Cleveland, I don't know if you guys want to hear this stuff. I, I, reason, I, I, I think I they want to hear this wait, stuff, wait, all right? I, I promise. I, I will tell you this. The reason I'm in the steel business, because I'm an econ major with some accounting. Can't, you can't really start a business unless you know a little bit of both of those things, right? 
and, I, and I got hired by Ernst & Ernst at the time. And they were going to make me an accountant. Go figure. That ain't ever going to happen. I'm just not that detailed enough. Don't have the patience or the meticulous. You remember right? the sponsor of this event, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, one of the reasons I got them is because they were the best. <laughs> and they, were, they are still the best. Cohen and Company and all those uh, guys you got working over there, they're the best. But anyway, uh, I was making $1,000 a month. And my college roommate was in the steel business up here. And his father says, see if uh, Ed will come up and work in the steel business. I'll offer him $2,000 a month. That's a 100% increase in wages. That, psh, I gave my notice. I'm out of the thing on accounting business. And I'm headed to the steel business. And uh, ever since then, I've, I've, I fell in love with it, actually. I fell in love with manufacturing. And I got it. You know, when you look around, you know, one of the things about an entrepreneur, I was thinking about what really is an entrepreneur. And you have different definitions that are floating around out there. You, I was, you can look at Merriam-Webster, you can look at Wikipedia, and it has a definition. And I guess I'm okay with it. It's a, the, the definition that's out there says a person who's willing to take risks that nobody else is willing to do. And, and, you, and I mean, that's the definition of Merriam-Webster. Uh, and, and I'm thinking, well, that, okay. But then you gotta ask yourself, well, why is he, the entrepreneur, gonna take those risks? Is he dumber? <laughs> I mean, the whole investment computer doesn't think it should be done. So why is an entrepreneur willing to take a, 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 a bigger risk than anyone else? And the answer to that is because he sees opportunities. He sees the solutions to opportunities and problems completely different than anybody else. He sees the solution while the other people, the majority of the people, only see the risks. And, and if he has enough confidence, persistence, and is willing to surround himself, willing and capable to surround himself with good people, good professionals, accountants, lawyers, and of course a bank. Uh, you gotta treat your bank like your best customer, by the way. That's a piece of advice I'll give everybody. Treat your bank like your best customer, because you're always gonna need them, they always have to be there. But anyway, if you have that confidence, then, then nothing scares you. You know, you'll, you'll go out, and you, you will see something that nobody else sees. I'm going to give an example. Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. You know the business that, he, that he's in is probably one of the oldest businesses in the world? It's transportation and, and distribution. That's the business he's in. It's been around for 4,000 years since the Phoenicians decided to trade in the Middle East, right? This guy is so innovative that he figured out how to do it better than anybody else. I mean, you, you know, Amazon's what, 15 years old, 20, 20 years old? You're talking about a guy in a business that has been around forever. But he looked at all the problems associated with connecting the dots, and he says, I think I can do that better than anybody else. So here we have, who doesn't use Amazon? <laughs> who goes shopping anymore? And, that, and then, of course, then you got the tech guys, but they're in a different world. They see communications different. They see the interactions of, of, of they see providing a service for free but making the money on the advertising. They see things, they see solutions and problems differently than anybody else. This would be my opinion. No, I, but that's what you started doing when you first got in the steel business, right? Yeah, I mean, in the steel business, I, all my competitors were publicly traded practically. And, and, uh, and, and you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking about these things, people are looking at you and go, you're gonna take on publicly traded companies? You, you think you can do that? And where the, this other guy is entrenched? Uh, yeah, and I said, yeah, I think so, because he, he forgot this, that, and the other. You, at the end of the day, you've got to have better quality, better service, a, a greater relationship, or lower costs in order to get business. 
Uh, and the ideal is to have all four, right? Because that's what everybody buy. Everybody bases their buying decisions on that. And if you can figure that out, uh, uh, where others can't, there there will always be uh, an opportunity for you to make the profits and be a successful entrepreneur. I mean, that that is so clear in in how you that that 1983 date. I just there's there's a story here, right? So so you're working your way up in this steel mm -hmm. business, right? You're, you're applying these principles on the shop floor improving every day, and, and you rose up. Just talk a little bit about that. Well, 1983, I'm going to tell you another, another uh, qualification that an entrepreneur has to have. He has to be able to take advice and counsel, um, not, not to make decisions, but to help you in your decision-making. Because remember, the difference between you and the people that work with you or for you is that they don't see the same things you do. But you have to challenge yourself. You have to just, okay, I have an idea. I think I have those solutions. Challenge yourself and make sure that you're getting honest counsel, not confirmation. I've already made up my mind, and all these guys are just going to tell me what I want to hear. Right? You have to have people that are confident enough to challenge it. Listen to it, interpret it, and go on. Now, why did that come into play? I'm going to tell you why it comes into play. Because the world is ever-changing, <laughs> even as steel. I'm going to tell you some, some immense changes in the steel business. Old industry, everybody thinks it's easy to be in the steel business. Well, it's not. It's changing every day just like everything else we're involved with, right? I started in, in 1983. China was producing 41 million tons. China now produces 1 billion, 100 million tons in that 40-year period. China was producing 4% of the world's steel. China now produces more steel than the rest of the world combined. Okay, now what's, what's happened? That's influenced manufacturing in Ohio because it shifted all the light manufacturing to China. The light manufacturing, machine tool industry, you think of all the, you know, Warner Swayze, all the machine tools that used to be made here, white. Uh, and we had all these steel mills. Uh, when I started in 83, the United States made 74 million tons, metric tons, and now they're in 90. It's not that significant of, a, of an increase. Think of 41 versus 1 billion. 100 million tons, and the impact that it, that has had on me. So it started, not only me, but everybody in the steel industry in, in, uh, in this part of the country, right? And actually, the entire country. You've had to reinvent yourself. So this ever-changing world, you cannot be afraid of it. There is a temptation for non-entrepreneurial people to take a look at life and say, I'm going to protect what I have. I don't want to change. I'm going to ride the, the existing. Uh, the best they'll do is, is manage the existing. Entrepreneurs, successful business people have to obviously man the existing, but you constantly have to plan for the future, and it is an ever-changing future. So you had the China effect. You had, listen, I don't know if you guys know this, but every pound of steel in, in, in the United States in 1983 was produced by integrated producers. Integrated producers. Uh, uh, Cleveland had two big operating mills. Okay, now they have one, half of one. Can you, t can you tell us the implication of having an integrated versus not? Well, okay. The integrators use uh, uh, iron ore for, to make uh, molten metal, and now uh, over 60% of the steel is made by mini mills, which start with scrap. 100% of the steel mill making, not 100, let's say 90% of the steel making was Great Lakes region, Cleveland. That's why I'm in Cleveland, right? Great, solid community of steel making and manufacturing. Well, it's shifting now. That now 60% of the steel, there's hardly any. Uh, Great Lakes Mills. There's U.S. Steel Gary, and then the Cliffs Mills. That's it. There's two mills. It take Canada away. 
Now the, the mini mills that control or dominate, they're the dominant uh, a price leader and, and thought leader in the industry, and they're in all farming communities. So you have to say to yourself, okay, and by the way, here's the other uh, landscape thing. This gets to the, the ever-changing world. You have to manage for that. The temptation is just to sit tight, suck up all your profits as long as you can, but then going to last if, you don't, if you're not innovating. If you're not innovating and changing with the markets, you're going to be dead. At some point, you're going to die in, in business. The, the other thing that happened, aside from the China impact and from the, the uh, steel industry changing from integrated to mini, just think of just recently, ICE vehicles versus EV. All the metals and all the components that go inside that vehicle have changed dramatically, the steel industry. It's no longer uh, low-carbon, malleable, formable steel. It's got to be super high strength, not high strength, super high strength, super safe, and lightweight. That's, that's the thing. So if you, if you had a, a steel-making operation that addressed structural quality and, and, and low-carbon low steels, and today you're dead man walking if you're not making your way into the lighter, stronger, safer products. That's another innovation that you have to be attentive to. Geographically, the things move all over the place, right? Heavy manufacturing, medium manufacturing, light manufacturing. This was a huge community. Cleveland had five stamping plants. A stamping plant for an automotive company is the guy who's, 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 made, who's uh, using the steel up. The rest of the automotive industry is made up of assembly plants, okay? So you have stampers and you have assembly. What you want, if you're in the metals industry, is stamping. You, have, you want a robust stamping community because you're going to ship there all the time. Cleveland in 1983 had five. It had Fort Walton Hills, uh, uh, Chrysler Twinsburg, GM Mansfield, GM Parma, and GM Lordstown. Five. You know how many exist today? Uno. One. So that means that everybody was, and by the way, those are only the direct uh, automotive stampers. Think of all the support industry that they had around them. Well, all those guys are gone. So what we've had to do, again, I think these are key and crucial to an innovative Entrepreneurs, you look at it and you say, well, how in the heck is this thing going to restructure? Uh, what are the products I can defend? What are the markets I can attack? Um, let's, let's think about that. Then it comes the hard decision. Do I have to invest in additional capital in order to address those market needs or this product development that needs to be happening? And, and uh, oftentimes, the, the longer you've been around, the more you don't want to take additional risks. I will say that one of the personality traits of, a, of an entrepreneur is risk don't, don't deter him. They just look at life different. <laughs> Sorry, and, and they concentrate They concentrate on setting up the organization to attack and defend the markets. And, and then, of course, if you're going to manufacture them, you've got you to deal with process, you've got to deal with people, you've got to deal with materials and machinery. You have to invest in all of them. So in 83, you, you've risen up in the company that hired you initially. Yeah. You see this opportunity to change some things, add some technology. You actually, because of your performance of that company, put the company into bankruptcy that you then identified, purchased, five people, yeah. built up, put the original company out of business that you were working for, and reinvented yourself to adapt to these changes. What that re like? What's that like? Like, what, what does that feel like? And, and what's it like to be reinventing all the time in that way? I don't see any way around it. You have to do the, the reinvention. Uh, you just have to. You have to adopt uh, to the to the realities of the world the way they are now. 
or the way they're going to be evolving. But he's right about I, I was working for a company that didn't, you know, didn't see the things that I was seeing, and I saw that there was a risk if somebody bought the plant that I'm in here in Cleveland. I, I, I went to the ownership group and I said, you know, we ought to buy that. He goes, you've been in the steel business five years, you know, 78 to 82 at the time, 83. He goes, what the heck do you know? You know, I've, I've been in it 40 years. I said, well, I think we ought to do it. He said, no. So I got my money together, went to Reed, was one of the original partners for Cohen, this guy right here. And um, I was lucky enough to be alerted that Cohen was the best small business accounting firm. Prior to that, by the way, for you, uh, prospective entrepreneurs, I had gone to every bank. I had $85,000 I had saved, okay? And I went to the bank, oh, oh, uh, 50 of it, uh, 35 was mine, 50 of it, my dad uh, borrowed on, uh, on a house, it took a second mortgage, which I, you know, of course, paid back at, at multifold. And I was going to banks myself, trying to get somebody to loan me to what I thought was all I was gonna need because I was gonna go in there and buy the equipment. Couldn't get anywhere. And uh, I was climbing over a fence to look at a piece of property uh, that, because you know, it was locked. And I thought, well, I'll go look in there on a Saturday. And the owner came running out. What are you doing? Thought I was going to go in there to steal. I said, look, I'm, you, you're kind of gated up. I want to see if that will facilitate my operation because I'm going to buy the equipment and move it over. He says, he sat down. Uh, you remember him, Alan Pearson. Um, and... As he was talking to me, he says, you need a good accountant. <laughs> and I, I said, okay. <laughs> he says, I know exactly the guy you need. He works at Cohen. I'm not kidding you. And he says, uh, Reed McGivney. He gives me his name. I take it down. I call him. And I never went to a bank again. He had the banks at his office listening to our deal. So within three months, we had a deal, and I was in business. I went in. He was my uh, surrogate bidder on the equipment because my competitors, I didn't want them to know that I was going back in business because if they did, they would obstruct and bid the equipment up and so on. And uh, yeah, I drove them out of business eventually. Yeah, It took me five <laughs> years, but they were gone. So was everybody else. <laughs> so that reinvention, can you just try, describe real quickly like the phases of that reinvention? Because they were different. You didn't do the same thing over and over. No, you have to adjust. The, the, the reinvention is not, I think I'll just change things. Your reinvention is driven by how the market and the products are changing. Remember, we all live no matter what we're doing out there in an ever-changing world. And you're going to change or you're going, or somebody else will. Right? And, and that person is going to beat you at all times. And since this market was shrinking, you have to sit to yourself and go, okay, I not only have to make different products, but I had to figure out how to take the limited amount to shrinking market share from people that are going to hold on to it for dear life. And you have to have that plan. So really, it's, it's just listen to your markets. Get up in the morning, think about it. I get up in the morning, it's kind of weird. I, I go to bed thinking about stuff. I wake up thinking about stuff. And I come in and half the times implement them. So you just have to, you have to, you have to continuously think about uh, your business. This stuff about uh, I'll work Monday through Fridays. For eight, ten hours, that, that, that ain't never going to work. At least it doesn't work for me. So, so you, I asked you a question about success, right? Because you're doing these fantastic things. Five people, you now have hundreds, right? It's very, you've built many plants, and you were specific to say, hey, look, I like building these things, not just buying them. I, I want to create that value. Describe what you see as success, or I would say generally to entrepreneurs, but like you personally. How do, how do, you, how do you see yourself as 
successful in the world? This sounds cliche. Successful in the world to me is, is having a great family. Um, if you have that, you, 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 you get to enjoy all of life. Um, good support. Of, it, it does. I know this sounds like cliche. Good support of life uh, that will dedicate herself to the kids so that it takes that stress out of your life. Because you're going to spend most of your life, if you're an entrepreneur, you're, working, you're going to be working a lot. And she has to figure out how to mold that so that you're still uh, enjoying the, the fruits of, of a family. You're asking me success. If you can pull the family, you can pull the business off. You've accomplished a lot in life because oftentimes uh, one of them suffers. And uh, so, you know, I mean, it's not that complicated for me. Success in a business is running a profitable operation, getting the right returns on, on your assets invested. I mean, that's... There's no other success other than that in business. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to push back on you on that because when you walked around your plant yesterday with me, I've walked around a lot of plants, right? And, and, and owners often know their people, say hi to their people. But the genuineness of the folks who were seeing you, I mean, this was greeting a friend. This was a genuine smile, multiple languages being spoken that you were speaking to people about, I don't know what, their days. It was not all business related. So there, there's something deep here, though, about respect and fairness and, and the livelihoods of all the folks that you employ. Can you just talk a little bit about how that fits into the overall, your overall journey, right? Yeah. Well, you have to surround yourself with great people, and, and you start, you know, with the interview process of identifying what the criteria are for a great person, and you start with character and integrity, hard work. Does he work well with other people? Is he resourceful? He or she uh, have no no uh, no prejudices at all. Just value them right down, and whoever is best at that get it. So you have to surround yourself with great people. And 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 but here's the last piece. Even if you go through the process of recruiting, interviewing, hiring, training. Then comes this last piece, and that's where uh, the way to run an enduring business is those great people have to stay there. You have to figure out a way to retain. So it's you know, it, uh, recruit, interview, tr uh, hire, train, and retain. The retain is the last one. The only way you're going to retain people is if, uh, and you know this, uh, this is not something, uh, but you have to dedicate yourself to it and you have to look for opportunities to, to, to demonstrate that as, as, as you have to treat them fair. And that, that fairness thing applies to every level of, of your, your organization. Uh, you have to be honest with them. Uh, you, have to, you have to understand what, and have a compassion for what they're doing and of course, uh, the utmost, utmost respect. And it has to be consistent. It cannot be, well, I like and respect these guys, I don't that guy, uh, or this girl, whatever. Uh, and and the, first, the best person for the job gets the job and, and give every single person an opportunity to excel, every single one of them. Comes in your office, you're gonna find that a lot of people, you know, they get to a point, that's where they wanna go. They don't wanna go anywhere else. They are perfectly happy. You know how I know that? Because they're eligible to bid up to another job and they, you try to encourage them, they go, nope. Dude, you're gonna earn 15% more. Nope, I'm staying right here. I know you can do it. I'll spend the time training. No, 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 I'll stay right here. And that's okay. You need, you need people in every type of job. Uh, so respect, uh, f uh, treat them fairly, never ask anyone to do anything you wouldn't do. Uh, be compassionate for their, 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 the things that 
that hurt them. Uh, at least in today's world, you're going to experience 40 to 50 percent divorce rates. So divorces are catastrophic for people. You got you know all the things you have to deal with there. Uh, time off, um, you have to manage through that. Um, can't treat management better than, than the hourly employees, but I, I could go on and on about that. I Fairness, respect are the two greatest things. You get that, they'll, go th they'll run through a wall for you. I, I just, it was so clear as day that you, you talk about building these businesses, but, but they're full of people whose livelihoods you've yeah. touched. So, yeah. so, so my, my last question here is around Cleveland, right? You, you talked yeah. about the history of, of manufacturing. And, and we do know that there's thriving manufacturing here, but those particular industries have changed, left, moved. You are still here. Yeah. You, you've reinvented yourself. Talk about why Cleveland? Why, why didn't you just you know, give up this plant and go build somewhere else? Well, yeah. I mean, you built somewhere else, but you kept this one at the core. Well, you know, Cleveland has, has been stressful uh, because, like I said, you know, the driving metalworking community left. Four-fifths of the stamping plants and everything associated with them has pretty much had to leave. So it's been challenging to, to retain uh, manufacturing. And you had to, like I said, you had to pay attention to how the, it was going to be evolved and whether there were products or services you could defend and attack market share and build it, you know, and then try to create more uh, revenue-producing operations that match up with that. That has to happen. Um, if you think about Ohio, and, and by the way, the, the stand, the, all, the, all the manufacturing, Ohio's been devastated by it. I mean, it's throughout the state. Cleveland, probably more than any of them. In 83, I think Cleveland was the biggest city in Ohio. I think now we're third. Uh, we just lost a congressional seat in the, in the state of Ohio. Uh, it, it, Ohio was a manufacturing community. I see Ohio now, and I know you don't want to hear this, but, but that's the way I see it. I see it as a healthcare community, and now, as a result of Mike DeWine and Houston convincing Intel to put in the biggest chip manufacturing plant in the, in the state of Ohio, if you close your eyes, I was at a fundraiser with those guys not too long, and I told them, I said, what, what the heck did you guys do? I mean, every city in the world was after this plant. Every city in the world. Even in the United States and all over the world, we're looking for this. This is the world's largest uh, chip manufacturing company. It's going to be in Ohio outside of Columbus. So they pull it off. Now that, to me, is going to restructure Ohio completely. It, it, and it's going to affect the manufacturing because technology has to be adopted in order to be more competitive in, in manufacturing. Now we have, I think there's going to be a huge mushrooming of opportunities in development uh, associated with this IT that's going in in, in, in Columbus. They've already announced a, a, a phase two. Guys, we're all going to be influenced by that. So in my opinion, uh, manufacturing has been under stress. I don't think it's ever going to come back from the automotive industry. And there's a reason for that, but because we still building, we're building more vehicles in this country than we did in 83. They're just not being built. They're not being stamped here in Ohio. And they're not being assembled here in Ohio. And there's a reason for that, uh, unfortunately. I think, uh, you know, if you want my opinion, uh, <laughs> well, how about we save that one for the questions? Everyone, Ed, uh, I guarantee you ask these questions, you're going to get very, very blunt responses. They're very good responses and stories. Ed, this is fabulous. Like I said at the beginning, your, your idea of persistence, 
seeing things that need to be better, having the know-how and courage to do it, you really exemplify that. And we are going to switch to questions from our audience right now. So this Q&A, again, I'm Ethan Karp, President and CEO of Magnet. And we are joined by Ed Gonzalez, President and CEO of Fairgon Corporation. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students in our audience. I know we have some alumni of Breakthrough, and we have from Magnet's apprenticeship program, Early College Career. We have some students from high school. We also have many joining via live stream at cityclub.org and live broadcast radio at 89.7 WKSU IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question for our speaker, please tweet at the City Club. You can also text your question to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794, and City Club staff will try to work it into the program. May we have the first question? Please tell me how being an immigrant um, shaped your viewpoint and contributed to your success. Being an immigrant, uh, does this to you, I think. At least it did this to me. When um, you saw the struggles of your parents and what you went through to get here, there ain't much that scares you. So it gives you a sense of there's nothing going to be that difficult. So uh, I think the, the, the greatest impact that being an immigrant does to you is it gives you strength and confidence that you can overcome any obstacle. Thanks. Mr. Gonzalez, you, you've had a remarkable success. Is there any government programs that you feel were particularly helpful? Were there any government programs that you felt were particularly harmful in that success? You know, the SBA was always a good organization, it, but, but for, for young entrepreneurs who think, well, I just get an SBA guarantee loan, your sales pitch, which we did, the original loan was an SBA guarantee loan, but your first sales pitch uh, is to the bank because if, if the bank all they're going to do is guarantee the loan. They're not going to give you the money. The SBA is not going to give you enough money to get into manufacturing. You're, you have to convince a bank uh, with a full business plan uh, to support you. And, um, and then the SBA comes back and, and helps that reduce their risk. And after you've been successful three or four times, five or so, so many years, you've overcome cycles. Then the bank drops that requirement kind of, they, they do. They drop that requirement and they really are listening to you because by that, by that time you've proven that you, are, you, know, what, you know what you're doing, uh, you know how to assess risk and manage them and run a profitable operation. So I like the SBA. As far as, it, uh, uh, and Reed, you gotta help me with this if, if you have a difference of opinion, but of, of the government agencies that have been uh, problematic, I don't know of any. You know, people in my position say, oh, that EPA is a pain in the butt. I've never found them to be a pain in the butt. They'll work with you. They'll try to help you. Uh, they're, they're raising the right issues. Uh, I certainly don't want to pollute the environment. I want, I, want, I want assistance in that. Help me out. So I've never, OSHA, same thing. I always want to run a, a, the safest organization possible. Nothing hurts you more than one of your employees getting hurt. Um, I don't know of any government agency um, that I've 
I, I've had a problem with, not one. I, I, I will add, walking through your plant, right? You, 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 folks, these are massive plants and, and massive steel rolls. And, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, very large scale things. And, and you walk in there and he has bays of putting tens of millions of dollars, I'm sure, in there sparkling white that he's revamping. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, you talk about the pollution and, and working with the government, but you also are at the front end of saying what's right for my employees, what's yeah, right yeah. for my technology and all those sorts of things. So next question, please. Thank you. Ed, uh, workforce is the buzzword nowadays because we either have it or we don't have it. You, have not, you and I have had conversations about an immigration and how maybe that could be a solution. Can you give us your uh, views on how to reform it how to help, how to, how to make it better. <laughs> Political question. No, uh, well, obviously, being an immigrant and, and, and knowing full well that almost everybody here is originist, is immigrant as well, uh, I'm always going to be pro-immigrant. But I do think the subject, look, I think it's a talking point for both parties, and they don't want to really address the problem, because I bet if 20 of us got in a room together, we'd come up with a plan. Uh, we, we really would. I mean, any 20, just grab 20 here, get them in a room, and we're going to come up with a solution, okay, that's going to be reasonable. Uh, and it always starts with this. And by the way, if we did, we all need employees. Is anybody in, in restaurants, uh, uh, retailers, manufacturing, everybody needs employees. And we're sitting here saying, well, we want to prevent or obstruct people from coming. We all want to be legal. They all have to be legal. So the first thing you got to do is start with how many do I want to, to come in legal or illegal? doesn't matter. When you start with that number, then you got to set up the organization to vet them because we only want good people here. And good people is a definition of a hard work and honest, you know, for, not a criminal. Yeah. But anyway, if we have more people, look, I have 23 immigrant classes in my company, 23. And it's a small company, 300 people, whatever. 23 immigrant classes, and I don't mean that their parents were born there. I'm talking about they were born there. Uh, I can go right down the list, you know, of, of thinking of it. So I think the word got out that we're immigrant friendly over there. So, and by the way, some of those guys are incredible. I mean, incredible talent and work ethic and integrity and attention to detail. I mean, they are crazy. You hate losing them. They don't leave their job. They take their lunch breaks at the machine. I mean, it's like crazy. You also treat them well. I mean, pay is uh, yeah. pay is a big deal here in, in all these fields. I yeah. mean, what's your what what's your guess around your starting wages for? It's over twenty, uh, and then we train from there to up to thirty. Um, we have a very formal training program that is unusual. I think that's one of the most unusual things. I asked colleagues of mine in the industry, I don't think anybody has the training program that we have. And that's another thing that, uh, that, a, that, a, that, that a blue collar guy wants from you. And, and don't forget, the typical blue collar, not all of them, but the typical blue collar guy has been told that he is, I don't want to say a failure, although some of them have been told they're a failure, if they don't go to college or if they don't aspire to do something else, right? And they're coming in with no skills uh, and high school diploma. And they struggle to get that, right? The thing that will give them the highest level of pride is if, the, if you help them develop a particular skill. And you go through the process, and then you show them how skillful they are. Some of these guys can't even, can't even read or write well, in other words, they can't take an essay question. 
correctly. So we'll give it to them in verbal. But it, once, once you, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's 200 questions. So we'll train the guy. We'll spend the time and, and we'll test him. Because the only way to verify learning is through a test, right? There's people who say, well, train, 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 train. The guy leaves, out the shop he goes. Gave him a test and he, don't, he doesn't know a single thing that's relevant. So we'll continuously test. And if he doesn't get it, we'll instruct him and so on. But once you give him that, look, here's, here it is. You can take that anywhere in the United States. It's in the, my line of business. And you show them this test score that you know the answers to all this, I guarantee you they're going to hire you. Those guys love that because you've now given them a skill and you've worked with their brain and their, and their, and their self-esteem. Hi, uh, I'm Brendan Peck. I'm with uh, Breakthrough Alumni. I'm also a, a owner of a video and photo company in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, I just want to say thank you for coming out and sharing your story, your success about uh, your rise in the manufacturing industry. Uh, you spoke on um, innovation and that without it, you're essentially a dead man walking in your industry. Uh, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on the, the rise of AI technology and how it's affecting industries across the world. That, that's a great question. That is a great question because we identified that as a very helpful tool if we had it. Now, I have, a, I have a, uh, an operation in Detroit, Gibraltar, Michigan, but that's Detroit. It's a huge operation, 600,000 square feet on 40 acres. And it has the most innovative piece of equipment in the world. We, uh, Farragon Corporation in Haikal has the most technologically advanced heat treat line. I'm, t I'm serious, in the world. It's the only one that's hydrogen quenched. All the other heat treat lines, U.S. Steels, Cliffs, everybody else, SSAB in Europe, they are water quenched. The company that we work with, which is the world's greatest, they are recognized as the, as, as the foremost authority on heat treating. So there's an Austrian company called Ebner. Anyway, they designed this. We worked together to design it. We got it in place up there. Now, that line is the one that produces lighter, stronger, safer materials, which is the evolution of where we're all headed with steels, right? And we are the first toll processor in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in this hemisphere, actually, but in this country who thought it was a good risk to take. The jury's still out on that. Okay, because it's, it's a lot more complex to bring that into operation. But let me tell you what we did. You, you, first of all, you take a piece of steel and you bring it up to an elevated temperature and it's going at a particular speed. Remember, it's so thick and so wide and the chemistries inside is different. You got chemistry inside is different. It's the, the variation in thickness, the variation in width, the line speed you go and the temperature you hit it. And it goes through three different distinct zones. You have a heat treat, then you have quench, then you have post-heat treat and final cooling, and now it comes in, hopefully, by the grace of God, you have a piece of steel that meets all the properties and conforms to all the requirements of the, of the customer. Well, tweaking all that stuff, so you know, they have 72 burners, uh, three different quench components, the, what's called the over-aging section. It it's, has a whole bunch of complications, valves opening and closing and speed, all, all kinds of stuff happening. We, we went to Case Western Reserve and the Colorado School of Mine and said, would you work with us to create a program so that we, put, we just put the inputs and all these things happen by themselves? And then, not only that, if something changes, that's where the AI comes into place, and that's why we need it. We talked to the dean of engineering at Case and at Colorado School of Mine. said, well, I need you to build the logic so that if I put inputs and I want a particular outcome that's different than the other one, Will it make the adjustments? In other words, does it have the metallurgical 
knowledge to make those adjustments. I'm here to tell you that both of them gave up. <laughs> they said it's too tough. <laughs> so we basically are ground zero. Even though we worked with them for a year trying to, trying to figure that out, it also broke down because there's, then there's a conversation, well, who owns the intellectual property once it's developed? So at some point, you know, once they start making prize, they go, well, you know, I want some of the intellectual property rights. And you go, hold on a minute, big guy. <laughs> I'm the one that's paying for all this. <laughs> uh, it's going to be mine. <laughs> right? It's going to be mine when we get done with it. No, so, but it's very difficult. AI has a future. I can see it. We saw it. But it's, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to implement when you have a, so many input variables going into the production of a, of a, of a conforming output product. And, not going to be easy. I just got, that is a brilliant example of in manufacturing, these are the types of technological challenges that are being innovated on, right? These are what the entrepreneurs are working on mm -hmm. because it's really hard to do, but it will revolutionize. That's this whole industry 4.0 thing you hear about, yeah. right? That, you, that such a great example of it. Next question. Uh, I'm Jose Feliciano, and you know, Ed knows that, the, the remainder note. Um, and at the risk of being a one-trick pony, um, I'm interested in expanding the entrepreneurial spirit in the Hispanic community. So, and um, from my perspective, I've taken the advocacy role, all right? And I feel that I have met with limited results, both in the broader community and, like you were saying, especially with the governmental community. So, what is it that I should be thinking about and others in my situation to help increase the entrepreneurial spirit in the Hispanic community? Jose, you may not like this answer, but I don't think you can. I think entrepreneurs, it's in their soul. Um, once they get into business, now, listen, I, I broke my femur. I'll tell you how crazy, and I think everybody like me is this way. I broke my femur uh, in a championship game in the eighth grade, and they put me in bed for 10 weeks because breaking your femur as a kid, you know, all kinds of bad things could happen. And I didn't, I didn't go to school for 10 weeks. And the homework had to be brought to me. And, and my dad would come in and say, son, is there anything I could, I could get you? And I said, yeah, how to start my own business. So I'm in the eighth grade trying <laughs> to think this way. <laughs> and he goes, well, what kind of business? And I said, well, I guess farming. <laughs> he goes, okay, I'll bring you farming books and starting a business. I think entrepreneurial spirit is in the people. But whether you're going to be successful, and I'm telling you, it depends on, he sees solutions to problems and opportunities that nobody else is seeing. When he looks at something, he goes, I can do that. And I have, the, the, the requirements to be successful is you got you to know basic accounting, you got to know basic economics. You really do. If you, if you don't, you're you better have a lot of people. I don't think an entrepreneur cannot have those and be successful. He's got to have some. You got to know if your if your demand curve is flat, if it's inelastic, elastic, marginal returns. Where do I price these things at, and and the debits and credits and, and liabilities and that. You have to know how your decisions are going to influence your income statement and your balance sheet. How you doing? My name is Emmanuel Gaynor. Um, my question is, um, as an experienced entrepreneur, what um, what would you say is a hard truth for new entrepreneurs that they need to get through their heads if they want to continue with that career path? Uh, 
my counsel is don't be deterred. If, if, you're, if you're the guy that, that I, ju I just talked about, person who genuinely sees a solution to an opportunity that's different than what's being discussed. You know, you know how to do this. You figured it out. And you're looking at it, like I said, like Jeff Bezos saw it or the information guys or, or Stephen Jobs or Bill Gates or anybody. They see things that nobody else is seeing. Okay? If you have that, I'm going to tell you what you got to have. And you got to be persistent. You, you cannot be discouraged when you know you're right. It, it, and, and I say that because you will be opposed. You will. The first level of opposition to you and fight you're going to have is with your competitors. They are going to fight you tooth and nail. You can't, if, if you think you've got a, a better business plan and so on. So persistence to me is, is, is incredibly important. Don't be deterred. Don't be discouraged by the fact that you have opposition. Your, your consulting group, the consulting group that, you, that I talked about, listen to them. But don't, they're not, they're not going to make your decision. You just, what they're, the, the, the value I've seen in them is that they, they force me to evaluate everything. Did I actually think of everything or did I overlook something? Um, and and, and the, these two words don't ever confuse. There's a, there's a difference between I am confident and I am stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Where, don't, where's the line? <laughs> <laughs> Be careful with that one. That one will get you in trouble. <laughs> Next question. From yes. So we have a text question. Uh, based on your sector and the business coming to Farragon, where is the economy headed? And do mm. business owners like you worry about the debt ceiling debate? Yeah, we always, of course, we all should worry about the debt ceiling debate. Uh, can we do anything about it? No. <laughs> I, have a, I had a son to try to get involved in solutions, and he ran up against a brick wall, so, and he, he was part of the organization up there. Uh, uh, so n I, well, let's hope it gets resolved. Uh, as far as the economy in the United States, I think there's a lot of great things happening in the United States. I'm, I'm incredibly bullish. I think uh, manufacturing may start to come back a little bit. Uh, technology is certainly coming back. I just told you about Intel. Remember, everybody was putting these plants overseas in Asia. Now, Intel's just started something, a trend maybe. Um, the, the, the economy of the United States, one thing that I don't know how, how it's going to play out is uh, commercial uh, and retail construction. Because that, what, what COVID did to all of us is they made us realize we can do certain things without going to an office building. And what Amazon did is convinced everybody they don't have to have a store. Okay, so those two things, that commercial industrial construction industry, that's going to be under some stress. Oil country is going to be under stress, but it's going to be, it's not in my lifetime, maybe in his, but uh, we're not getting rid of fossil fuels. Next question. Hello, um, my name is Isaiah Jenkins with Breakthrough. Um, so I listened to you talk. You told us your story from start to finish, from working in the college dorm, 1,000 to 2,000 to now. And clearly the growth has been exponential. But um, I wanted to know what kept you going throughout the whole process, all the little in-betweens, when things got tough, when things were going well. What was it that kept you moving and helped you stay focused on the goal? 
Like I said, there's no substitute. I'm serious. It sounds cliche. There's no substitute for a stable, peaceful home life. Um, you, you, no, no entrepreneur can come home and f fight the family after they've spent 12, 14 hours a day fighting the marketplace. It's tough. We have a text question that's a direct follow-up to, to that answer. You say finding a good wife to stay home with the kids, but not all entrepreneurs are men. How can we all better support women? I, wait a minute, what, what, did I say that again? I didn't say stay home with the kids. I said a family life, and you implied that it meant she had to stay home. She's a school teacher, by the way. She graduated third in her class. She's a lot smarter than I am. That's great. So, I was a C student. And, and so, so the question is, how can we support women as entrepreneurs? Women are not all the same any more than men are, right? Uh, some of them want to aspire to do lots of things, and society is stupid if they don't let them support them, give them the opportunities. But don't think that all of them want to do that any more than that guy wants to get off to cut the length line. Some of them enjoy the heck out of raising kids, and I can't think of anything but raising kids. Uh, like I said, my wife is, is, is graduated third in her class, and I don't know. 3.8. I got a daughter that, that was uh, magna cum laude, senior cum laude at Loyola. How about some advice for the entrepreneur who is trying to slow down? Do you see that mm. in your life? And how do you think you'll handle that? Uh, is, is that a hint to me? Is, is that, are you talking to me? I'm talking to you. You talking to me? Does somebody then, tell you to do this? Secondly, as you're thinking of that, you work hard, play hard. Where is your very famous and favorite place to go that you can relax. Okay, okay, okay. If, I'm, if an entrepreneur wants to slow down and the business has been as prospered because of entrepreneur innovation, uh, sell it. Okay, get the cash and distribute the cash later. Because remember, if the prosperity was dependent upon innovation and entrepreneurship, it is very unlikely that there's another entrepreneur in your company. So. If, if the success of that and the prosperity has depended on that, then sell it, give them the money. But if it isn't, if it's, um, it's, it, it isn't dependent, it's just dependent on good management in place, then you can decide at some other things. I forget the second phase of that question. Well, I'll get back. You haven't sold your business. No, I have not sold my business. Uh, I don't know that I, I, when I get tired of the, of, of, I, I, I see a bunch of opportunities in my head. Drives my guys crazy, by the way. Uh, not my my bank kind of likes it because I've always paid them, <laughs> even during the tough times, 2008, 2020. Uh, they've always gotten the principal and interest. So. And the last question was, what's your favorite place to go relax? Oh, in Ohio, uh, Putin Bay, but uh, the, the winters in Naples aren't that tough. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ed Gonzalez and Ethan Karp. City Club would also just like to take a moment to welcome guests at tables hosted by Beyond Breakthrough, Cohen and Company, the Cohen family, KeyBank, Magnet, Early College, Early Career, and the Northeast Ohio Hispanic Center for Economic Development. Thank you all so much for being with us today.
Our forum today is the first annual Ronald B. Cohen Forum on Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Mr. Cohen's firm, Cohen & Company, continues to thrive after more than 40 years in business and is grounded in helping its clients, employees, and the community to be successful. Mr. Cohen's vision and passion have continued to drive success in Northeast Ohio and nationally. The forum this forum was established through a generous gift from Cohen & Company, the Cohen family, and Mr. Cohen's many friends and supporters. The City Club is very grateful for all of your support. Thank you for joining us today, Ron. An exciting forum tomorrow, Saturday, May 20th, uh, presented in partnership with the Cleveland Orchestra's, Orchestra's 2023 Mandel Opera and Humanities Festival. It's tomorrow afternoon, and it's at the Tinkham Veal Center at Case Western Reserve University. You can find out more at cityclub.org. You can also see some other information about upcoming forums, including a midweek forum next week about the, uh, the future of women's basketball in Cleveland, Ohio. We hope you'll join us for that. You can learn, again, that's all at cityclub.org. Thank you so much once again to Ed Gonzalez of Farragon Corporation and Ethan Karp of Magnet. Thank you very much. Members and friends of the City Club, our forum is now adjourned. Have a wonderful weekend. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.